the mechanical slapping machines. That was a favorite of mine. Hi, and welcome to Meet Your Heroes. I'm Audrey. And I'm Elliot. And this is the show where we ignore the very good conventional wisdom to never meet your heroes, and instead get up close and personal with the lesser-known legacies and real-life bad behavior of some of history's most notable and beloved people. I'm excited about this week's hero, let me tell you. So we're just cutting the bullshit straight to it. Yes, yes. Honestly, I could make up some bullshit small talk for you, but I feel no need. Great. Because... I hate small talk. <laughs> yes. In fact, I think it's one of the organizing principles of your life to choose your major decisions in a way that minimizes small talk at almost all other costs. Oh, yeah, really? It is, though. It's um, one of my least favorite activities. Pre-pandemic, before all of this started, you had explicitly uh, chosen work that allowed you to work from home, mm-hmm. I think in no small part due to other people. Yeah, it's just very hard for me. One, I don't like being perceived as being a human being. And so when <laughs> yes. other people okay. are like, oh, wow, you're a human being. Let's have a transactional conversation. It's difficult for me. I don't love it. Yeah, I'm with you. Although I do have to say I am slightly perturbed that you somehow managed to pull us into small talk about small talk. <laughs> okay, fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Moving on. Uh, I'm excited because uh, I knew a little bit about this person beforehand, mm-hmm. and I thought uh, that would be like, oh, I have a fun fact. Mm-hmm. And then I got into it, and this person is way fucking worse and way fucking weirder than I imagined. Yes, I knew a little bit about this person just because my professional work is uh, food industry history adjacent. Okay, okay. And so I know some of the like early scandals of his work but i mean we might as well say who is this week's hero this week's hero john harvey kellogg so what do you know about mr kellogg spelled with two g's very distinctively Mm -hmm. cereals yes he's Um, a cereal guy the cereal guy i know he had beef with the post guy oh cereal beef cereal beef i don't want to i don't want to spoil anything that's coming up with the things that i do know i know that he is a brother mm-hmm. it's like the kellogg brothers yeah there were there were there were actually several of them mm-hmm. as we're gonna find out yes but let's let's not spoil it let's okay. just get into it let's start in tyrone michigan on february 26 1852 all right, I'm situated in the timeline. It's the cold of the Michigan winter. Mm-hmm. Everything's wood and coal burning. Little baby John Harvey Kellogg, born to his father, John Kellogg, <laughs> is one of 17 children. Yikes. Although in, <laughs> just it's not quite as bad as it sounds. Six of them were from his father's first marriage. 17 in general is just a lot of children, regardless of how many wives or marriages there are. I'm just are. saying, the second wife only had to birth 11 children. Fair enough. Which, you know, those are amateur numbers. They were not too wealthy, but very religious. Okay. I feel like 17 children, very religious, not very wealthy. All of those things kind of go hand in hand. Yes. Yeah. Makes sense. His father, 
the elder John, Mm -hmm. had joined several Baptist and Congregationalist revivals, you know, the evangelicals of their day. And eventually, the Kellogg family become Seventh-day Adventists. Mm -hmm. Now, I know a fair amount Mm -hmm. about Christianity, Mm -hmm. but I realized I didn't actually know that much about Seventh-day Adventists until I started researching for this episode. Yeah, I know a lot about them also because they're food industry adjacent folks. They are. Folks. They are. Yeah. So the just a little bit of history because I found it fascinating and it's very central to this story. Before Adventists, there was this Millerite movement. Mm-hmm. So William Miller was this farmer and a preacher. And he was like not a full-time preacher. He was just like preacher on the weekends, but farmer most of the time. Started preaching, reading the Bible, got a small gathering and decided that Jesus was going to return to Earth on October 22nd, 1844. Okay. They've always got a date. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, and so he said this, like, around 1840. Oh, wow. Okay. And So coming soon. At first he was hesitant to name the date, but, like, his group started to grow, and he named the date, and it started to really snowball. So what went from a few hundred, went, turned up to, like, tens of thousands of people across the United States who were ready for everything to just, like, come to an end at the second advent, the second coming of Jesus on October 22nd, 1844. The day's coming. It's October 20th, right? Tens of thousands of people are surrounding him, coming in, left their homes behind. October 21st, Oh no! they are praying, getting ready. And as you may or may not know from history, <laughs> on October 22nd, 1844, it was not, in fact, the second coming of Jesus Christ to earth. That's what they want you to believe. That's <laughs> what they want you to believe. Yeah, it didn't work out. Uh, this went down uh, because there were so many people. Ooh. They began calling it the Great Disappointment. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Which you can imagine why. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were ready. People didn't take that well. There were a lot of different theories about what went wrong. There were like 16 different competing interpretations that immediately splintered off. Okay. And this guy was like, I don't know, read your Bible. Um, <laughs> it's like the reasonableists in Parks and Rec. Yes. Where they're yes. like, okay, it's March 18th, whatever. For the end of the world ceremony. End of the world ceremony shows up next day, or like nothing happens next day. He comes in, he's like, okay, I actually have a new date. It's this day. And she's like, oh, sorry, the pavilion's booked that day. Yeah, and he's like, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, you're right, you're right. It's the next day. She's like, <laughs> yeah. okay, you can have that day. <laughs> yes, this is the system that we've got going. Mm-hmm. Um They decided it was not that day, but Mm. different people had different interpretations. Eventually, this... What if, what if, hear me out, Mm -hmm. that was the right day. Jesus came down and was like... Ooh. Not, not no. for me. No thanks. This is not. This is not what I expected. <laughs> no, he comes down like slavery is still legal. Yeah, he's looking around. About to start a civil war. Yeah. No thanks. Ooh, yeah. Michigan is not where Jesus is gonna show up at second time. <laughs> yes. So for those reasons, <laughs> Jesus is not coming back. One of the one of the splintered interpretations started by a woman named Ellen G. White. Okay. And Ms. White here, a few months after the Great Disappointment, so from October in December after that, she started to have visions, visions from above, visions from heaven, mm-hmm. started talking to God, would end up having over 2,000 of these visions. And she said, it didn't work out, but I can tell you what's really going to happen. She would tell the disappointed followers that it wasn't what you expected, but I can explain, started to build up a group of these followers. And the followers that splintered away from Miller and started following White were the Seventh-day Adventists. 
Oh, okay. They would, the church would be shaped by her visions, and one of them included a call for health reform. Mm-hmm. So we'll come back to this. But Father Kellogg, John Kellogg I, sure. met Ellen G. White, became a follower. He said, look, I will pledge you most of the money I have. You have to come, and we're going to spread the good news. You have a publishing company. He got together with a, lot, a couple other people, like three or four people, and they said, move your publishing company and everything here to Battle Creek, specifically. Battle Creek, Michigan. Mm. And they did. And John Kellogg I started a broom factory, and that's how they would pay the bills to pay for their publishing of the booklets. Wow. And it just started rolling from there. So, big broom market. Big broom market, yes. Uh, little John Kellogg gets a start. Working in a broom factory. Working in a broom factory, <laughs> yes. They believed that the second coming of Christ was still imminent. It hadn't been back then, but it was still going to come. Uh, so really, you really didn't need a formal education much. I mean, if you really think about it, the scale of the universe, let's say Jesus Christ himself returns in 40,000 years, that is imminent when you look at like the, the scale, the time scale of how long the universe has been around. That's true. It's all relative, really. Yeah, yeah. Millions of years versus 40,000, blink of an eye. Yeah, tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, honestly, if your calculations aren't exactly right, it, it, does, it does tend to, you would miss by a lot. For sure. So it's kind of like uh, landing on the moon. Mm-hmm. You can miss a little bit, but being close isn't really much of a consolation. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it was imminent by their calculations and her visions. So didn't really need to go to school. Could just broom factory it up. John Harvey Kellogg was kind of sickly, so he started reading books in bed as a kid. And eventually he just became this voracious reader. So even though he only ended up attending school for two years from like nine to 11, when he wasn't sorting brooms in the factory, he was just reading and learning and teaching himself an incredible amount for a kid that didn't go to formal education. Eventually, he was so well-educated that the Whites offered him a job in their publishing house. Okay. So Ellen White and her husband were like, come work for us. At first, he was just an errand boy, but his reading and writing were good enough where he worked his way up all the way to a proofreader and then an editor in the publishing house without you know, any schooling to speak of. He said, fuck them brooms. <laughs> yeah, got out of that broom game. Let me tell you, hard life. While they are in Battle Creek, they have this vision of healthy living. And so the church opens up the Western Health Reform Institute. So this is a group of health institutions. They realize they want to like make this part of their mission, but they don't have a lot of Seventh-day Adventist doctors. Well, they're about to. Yeah. Well, also, like they didn't believe in a lot of formal education, but once they were like, we need doctors. We need doctors. It's like, okay, so we got to figure something out. So, like, maybe Jesus will hold off long enough to get let us train some doctors first. Sure. Um, so they, Kellogg was going to go be a teacher. He actually, like, taught for a little bit, uh, you know, in high school and stuff. He taught younger kids, but they convinced him that they would pay for him to go to school. So he got into and attended and graduated from the University Medical School in Ann Arbor and then eventually NYU's Medical College at Bellevue in New York City. Wow. Started from the bottom. And the brooms. <laughs> and now he's here. In 1875, he graduates and returns to Battle Creek as a newly graduated doctor whose tuition was paid for by the founders of the church. <laughs> he becomes the physician in chief of the Health Reform Institute. What are these reforms that they're asking for? Well, um, is it mostly like stop dying of tuberculosis? Let's dig into that a bit. Okay. He gets there and he immediately starts a rebrand because it's not mm. clear. Mm. And he invents the word sanitarium. Ugh. Now, 
It is not a sanatorium. Okay. A sanatorium, to what you just alluded to, is a medical facility for the, at the time for long-term illnesses, mostly TB, tuberculosis. Yes. Uh, and it was basically before we discovered antibiotics or the right. germ theory of disease. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. like, oh, you're sick. Go stand in that. Go to that building with all the other sick people so you don't get us sick. <laughs> yeah. And stay there forever, basically. Yes. Um, and this was not that. Okay. The vision for them is, quote, biologic living. Okay. And that means they believe that an appropriate diet and exercise and recreation was required in order to maintain this healthy body, mind, and soul. I would say a lot of medical professionals still uh, still would agree with that. Yeah, and also, if you did maintain a healthy body, mind, and soul, you would go to hell. Oh, ooh, see, that right there is the left turn. Yeah, so it's yeah, a, We didn't need to go that far. Slightly have, stronger. Yeah, have a healthy position. body, mind, and soul because it feels better than not. Also because you don't want to go to hell. Even Satan doesn't want you if you're unhealthy. Yes. Although, actually, I take this back because one of the things I discovered as part of the Seventh-day Adventists was that when you die, they believe then lights go out. You're on, like there's no consciousness, nothing. Curtains. You don't go to hell. Okay. Then later on when Jesus does come back, he raises everybody from the dead. They go through a big book that has everything you ever did in it, like okay. a literal book. Okay. And read it a page at a time in front of everybody. Yes. And if you were good, you go to heaven. Okay. And if not, you're dead again. I am so nosy. I would love this. (laughs) I would love this. Hate small talk? Super nosy. I would get front row seats every day to the book reading. I mean, think about how long this is going to take for billions and billions of people. Yeah. What else am I doing? I'm fucking dead. I've got nothing else. I might as well enjoy yet. I mean, you would. I know you would enjoy this. So their Health Reform Institute is trying to promote this lifestyle uh, he brands it the sanitarium, and it is essentially a medical spa combined with a hotel. Okay. Like, it is, you know, them kind of providing these services to the world. So it includes allowing people who couldn't pay to come get treatment and sometimes even surgical care. Like, Ooh. he's he's a, he's a surgeon and a doctor. Fair enough, yeah. Right? So they can get treatment. But it also is like this resort for the rich and famous. So everybody from President Taft, Amelia Earhart... The Nobel Prize winning playwright George Bernard Shaw, Henry mm. Ford, uh, Thomas Edison, uh, even Sojourner Truth, right? The activists at the time. Every, all of these people come through as just people to experience this healthy living, even if they don't have any sickness that needs curing. Wait, we just talked across a very wide time frame of folks. Yeah, so this thing... You're talking about like... It's established there's, you know, famous people coming through all the way up through Amelia Earhart, yes. like 50 years later. Yeah, so let's be clear. He takes over as the physician-in-chief in 1876. Mm-hmm. He will have this job until he dies. Okay. So he will live his entire life in this position. I just wanted to make sure that we, we weren't positioning Amelia Earhart in 1876. Yes. No, that's correct. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but in his time there, all these people will come through. Wow. So they have this, like you know, sterling example of a place to, you know, experience their health reform. And a few years after taking over, about three years in, the doctor marries Ella or Villa Eden, initials E-E-E. They are happily, uh, they are married okay. <laughs> for the rest of their lives. Do they start off happily married? Uh, well. Or is this more of a, just like an arrangement? <sighs> They, I told com- you, I'm nosy. They're committed to each other. We'll get to this in a second. Okay. Oh, okay. So they're married. They are promoting this healthy living. 
So what does this entail? So the first thing is they are an early proponent of the germ theory of disease. Mm-hmm. They're like, okay, there's microorganisms. You know, you got to stay clean. Great. They believe in no tobacco or alcohol or caffeine. See, you lost me. <laughs> yeah, that's what it takes. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of those. Sure. Yeah, fair. <laughs> um, they are vegetarian. I do know this. They this can... is like a this is still a big thing in the Seventh Day Adventist community. They have like their own college to educate physicians about plant forward diets. Yes. Yes. Very, they no flesh eating as they put it. Mm-hmm. They were actually the very first ones to ever put out a mass market meat alternative. They they had something called protos, which was like a peanut and wheat gluten meat thing. They sure did. Can only imagine how that tasted. Good enough. Yeah, like peanuts and wheat maybe, who knows. Yeah. Um Put enough gravy on it, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, just not tobacco gravy. Just not tobacco <laughs> gravy. In addition to the diet parts, they have this assortment of really wild medical. I, I put medical in scare quotes here. Medical treatments. Ooh, ooh. Um, so they believe in hydrotherapy. Lots which of is folks did. Electrotherapy. Okay, so they're pulling from the uh, state institution psych- psychiatric ward medical playbook here. Yes, but like this is like there's pictures. I'm sure you'll post some social media this week where, like, people are just, like, laying in beds, like, hooked up to crazy wires uh-huh. just for no ailment, just to, like, keep their body juices flowing. Okay. <laughs> sure. Shock them loose. Is that what my problem is? <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> my, my fluids are not loose enough? Shock your fluids loose. <laughs> yes. They, they believe they had these fun mechanical horses. Uh, I don't know if you saw those. They'd ride mechanical horses. Like outside the grocery store? Like put 25 cents in and here's your mechanical horse? Yes, but imagine one that is large enough for a grown man to ride. But why? And then you have to ride it in your underwear. But why? Um, for right. vigor, obviously. <laughs> Health and vigor. I guess. Second way to shock your fluids loose. <laughs> There's uh, the multi-person foot vibrators. Exactly what you would picture. And then... <laughs> I, I, I honestly was like, please describe that. I can't even imagine what that would look like. Okay, so it's just like imagine the massage chairs at the at the mall or mm-hmm. in the airport, right? Mm-hmm. But it's like four chairs all back to back, and then it's on a platform, and everybody gets their feet vibrated simultaneously. <laughs> just the feet. <laughs> just the feet. What a wasted opportunity. You're right? going to shock so many other fluids. Uh, the mechanical slapping machines. That was a favorite of mine. Uh, on Like on your face? Uh, no, your whole body. So, what? so imagine. You know, so you know how you go to some car washes and they have those big pillars that have like the rags uh, attached to them, so that they spin really fast and they like slap your car. Yes, I'm familiar with what a car wash is. Well, I'm saying like some of the car washes now are touchless, right? No, this is the old school like gonna slap your car with wet rags. Well, yeah. they have those, but for people. <laughs> so it's like a column the size of a human man, two of them, and you just stand there and just get slapped repeatedly over and over. And and. My man's Kellogg behind the scenes is just designing these? Yeah. Yeah. He's designing them. He is- Building them or is he contracting? Oh, he's a doctor. He doesn't- No, he's not getting his hands dirty here, right? I don't know. A lo- Here's Here are the things that this man has in common with a number of our other heroes. Born in the mid-1800s. Had like two years of school. Voracious reader. Mm-hmm. Sounds like he's a tinkerer. So many of these guys were just tinkerers. Yeah, I mean, like, if you're not a farmer, what the fuck are you going to do all day, right? If you're, <laughs> if you're like, wanting to use your brain for stuff, you're like, uh, how am I going to shake the fluids loose today? And you're like, I know. Yeah. I need to invent an acyl manipulator. Uh, 
<laughs> which is, by the way, just what a called? vibrating belt. That was the vibrating belt machines. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, that's, but that's to lose weight, right? His purpose was to sh- shake your fluids loose. Okay. But yes, people then later thought it would make you lose weight. All kinds of shit to just like shake you, zap you, whatever. But yes, he's tinkering. He's doing all these things. He has some less conventional treatments than those, though. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, those yeah, were kind it's of- just the bop it toy? <laughs> yes. <laughs> he's like, okay, I've got shake it and zap it. Now what can I add to this? Twist it? Uh, you could add yogurt enemas. Oh, I. <laughs> that is so much worse than Bop It. That's that's the. Um, is that the Bop It? That is very <laughs> much not the Bop It. <laughs> it's not the Twisted. I'll tell you that. <laughs> shove it. That's the shove it. Is what it would be, wouldn't it? Yeah. So he, yogurt enemas. Now, in fairness, the way they worked first, you had to get an enema with several several gallons of water first. And then they would take gallons. <laughs> yeah, several gallons you of water. You brushed over that real quick, because <laughs> um, like traditionally, again, similar to like hydrotherapy and electrotherapy, enema therapy has a long history of therapy and medicine. Sure. Gallons. <laughs> gallons is of water. usually not the unit of enema yes. that that is required. This is a very thorough enema. How, that would kill you. Not if you. I mean, only if you did it fast enough. It's just all day gallon enema <laughs> followed with spread yogurt. it out over twenty minutes. So so several gallons of water. Minutes. And then and then so then you take a pint of yogurt, right? Now, now in fairness There's no fairness. This is the <laughs> least fair thing I could imagine. Okay, so with the pint of yogurt, you eat half of it. No. Uh uh-uh. uh. And then you get an enema with the other half. And the idea is that they meet in, in the that middle. Order? Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right? So they meet in the middle. <laughs> and and the craziest part about all of this is that the reasoning was that it would clear out and then help rebuild your gut flora. I mean, so that part is true. Which is actually true. He was way ahead of his time on yes. that. This is not an effective way to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but he was on the cutting edge of science that that was the thing that you might want to do. Got it. Um, it's just like the yogurt is not a great system to accomplish that. It's a generous way to say it's something you might want to do. Yeah. I mean, he, even his idea, he said it was, quote... Did he do this? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. So this isn't just like some sadistic thing he's putting on other people. Actually, I'll take it back. So he definitely administered to other people. I would assume... He, he speaks glowingly of it, so sure. I would assume he did. But um, he, he said it w- the idea was, again, that you were planting, quote, the productive germs where they are most needed and may render most effective service. Okay. Again, exactly accurate, except not the way to accomplish that. Also, how fucked up does your gut flora have to be that this is the solution to it? Just like, friends, you need to eat more fiber. Yes. Well, people were not eating much fiber, which was one of the other core issues here. But um, Not a lot of vegetarians. No, they weren't. But but the Seventh-day Adventists, they were going to change that one yogurt enema at a time. Now, up until this point, all of these ideas have been a little wacky, um, not very grounded in really defensible science like some of them were trying uh this is the point where the religious influences begin to overshadow any uh medical redeeming qualities maybe jesus came back and he found out like the thing he has to do is a yogurt enema and then he was like no No we're going back to the book yes no thanks (laughs) no thank you the one motivating factor that drove the vast majority of Kellogg's life work for invention and medical treatment was not, however, shaking fluids loose, 
um, or even just nutrition for its own sake. Okay. The number one thing that he hated and wanted to rid the world of more than anything was sex. Oh. Yeah. Absolutely voraciously puritanical. Like sex within marriage or just sex as a in general? Like strictly this is procreation only so situation. The official Seventh day Adventist position okay. was that sex was only ever for within a marriage for the sake of procreation. My man's Kellogg <laughs> okay. said, Oh no no, that's not holy enough. And he vowed and by all accounts remained a virgin his entire life. So him and his wife wow. never once had sex, never once sealed the deal, did the deed. They adopted eight children. They fostered 42. Wow. But they never once had any biological children. Okay. If you choose celibacy for yourself, awesome. all right. If you're asexual, cool. Fine. Um, but he was not content with just avoiding sex himself. So they never are. He wrote a book called Plain Facts for Old and Young, Embracing the Natural History and Hygiene of Organic Life. And he basically wrote this book and then began this many decades long course of treatments and work to convince all of these other people of the dangers of sex and specifically the dangers of masturbation. Masturbation for them was much, much worse than sex for reasons that didn't really have any like medical justification, mm-hmm. but were about like, you know, uh, inflaming the spiritual passions in a way that was much more corrupt in their eyes. Um, and so a lot of the treatment at the sanitarium begins to focus on how do you prevent sex and masturbation? That is a very specific focus for a health institute. Yes. Yes. Let's be clear. Also, if you stopped having sex, there would be no more people, right? Like it can't work for everybody. Right. Um, and you have to have enough people to stick around until Jesus comes back, presumably. Damn. Well, I, mean, I guess. I mean, if that's your goal. But didn't stop him. So- First things that he would do. Uh, first approach to avoiding masturbation and sex, uh, food. Okay. So he wrote that seasoned and flavored foods, including and especially meat, encourage masturbation. One okay, of, so bland food only. Bland food. One of his quotes was, uh, tea and coffee have led thousands to perdition this way. Candies, spices, cinnamon, cloves, peppermint, and all strong essences powerfully excite the genital organs and lead to the same result. Which is why... Peppermints are so incredibly popular these days. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Orgasms in your mouth. I guess. Or, I mean, like, he was, yeah, he was like, you can't help but masturbate when you have peppermint or tea or coffee, right? Like, that's that's a, that's a fact, medically speaking. And um, Medically speaking, that's the part that gets me, yeah. Yeah, right? Like, your people were lining up for these peer-reviewed studies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no. So the, the, the thing here is, like, he starts to weave in his medical training with things that are very clearly just based in his conjectures, his guesses, and, like, cloaks them in this veil of medical science when there's actually, like, no justification, no studies that he's done, no peer-reviewed evidence that he's researched. There's a lot of people doing research, right, I- even in sexual health at the time. Yeah. He's not looking at any of that. He's just like, this is what I believe— this is the way it is. He just doesn't want to be there in front of billions of people when Jesus reads his page in the book that's like, yeah, masturbated a lot, mm-hmm. had some sex. Yeah. Like he, yeah. He's just like really not wanting that to be read out loud in front of billions of other people. Yeah. It's a very clear fixation, right, that comes back to this like shame in public about it. 
Um, so he, he decides he's not just going to like avoid those foods. You have to invent better foods for people to substitute. So he gets his inspiration from Sylvester Graham, who in 1829 had previously made a food that was 100% effective in preventing masturbation called the graham cracker. Okay. Yep. <laughs> right? Yeah. Have, yeah. Let me, well, you laugh, but let me ask you this. Have you ever masturbated after eating a graham cracker? Yeah. Actually, I'm, I haven't had a graham cracker in 20 years. So that's why you've been avoiding them. Okay. That's why I've been avoiding them. But I do know the history of graham crackers. Yeah, right? The goal, the goal was, he's like, okay, if you give people a boring enough food, they won't want to masturbate. And Kellogg saw that and he's like, fucking genius, man. Okay, <laughs> yeah. I got I to run with that. <laughs> um, so he's like, okay, so how can I take Graham's work and like build on it? And he's like, what needs to be uh, innovated next? And he's like, breakfast. Breakfast needs to be innovated. Mm. And frankly, he wanted to revolutionize breakfast, but there was a lot wrong with most people's breakfast. Like yes. at, at the time, it was a very heavy, unhealthy mo- meal. It was really labor intensive. Like the default at the time was... You know, the woman of the household would... Sausage, eggs, biscuits. But she would also have to wake up, like, early in the morning to start a wood fire. Yeah, for sure. And then would cook all these biscuits and things in the fat from the meal the night before. Mm -hmm. And so it was, like, hugely labor-intensive. It was, like, really oily and fatty. And he was like, this is bad for you. Okay, fair enough, right? He wanted to make it convenient, tasty, healthy, and... Make your dick shrivel up. So what did he do? <laughs> he found a mix of wheat and oats and corn. And he's like, how do we how do we get this to be optimally healthy? He's like, pre-digest it for people. Yeah. So mashes it up and cooks it. So like trying to mimic the process of the stomach acid to like get it broken up. Mm-hmm. Pushes it down on a big flat pan, bakes it until it's like this hard, like, like you know, quarter inch thick like sheet. And then uh, starts crumbling it up. Uh-huh. Right, just breaks it up into pieces because it's so hard you can't like break it into pieces with your teeth. It would hurt. Yes. So he breaks it up in these little like crumbs and he calls it granula. He's like, have my breakfast granula. And they eat and they're like, oh, this is okay. It's all right. Uh, and somebody approaches him and is like, I am suing you because you are not going to steal the name of my product granula. And he's like, there's another granula out there and there's two granulas in this fight. He loses. He loses the battle for the name Granula, and he has to come up with something, so he comes up with Granola. And sure enough... It sticks. It sticks. It sure does. It's a terrible name, even now. <laughs> and somehow people are like, yeah, I'll put that in my mouth. Like, change one letter from Granula <laughs> to Granola. But it worked. People, yeah. people liked it enough to keep eating it. I mean, like... I mean, Granola's fucking delicious. I, the way I don't think d- it's like Master... Masturbation-inducing delicious. No, but it's masturbation-preventing delicious is I what mean, it is. Not, have you had granola recently? I've I've not recently had granola and then masturbated. I'll tell you <laughs> okay, that. Fair enough. <laughs> so let me tell you. Um, yeah, so it works. Um, so he has this granola hit, and he's like, okay, and he's serving it at the sanitarium, mm-hmm. uh, and people are loving it. Mm-hmm. His younger brother, Will, is there working with him. And so Brother Will is helping to make this granola, and one night he puts it out and forgets to put it away before he goes to sleep. Gets harder. It gets harder. It, like, mm-hmm. hardens up. And he's like, ooh. So he's supposed to put in this machine that's going to go flatten it out into these big sheets, but it's already kind of, like, dried out. And so he's like, well, I'm just 
try it anyway. He puts it in anyway into this rolling machine, and it comes out in cracked into these little tiny flakes. So each layer of it had like separated off instead of being a, a you know a half inch of granola that had crumbled into chunks. Each layer had flaked off separately and into little pieces. They were like, what are we going to call these cornflakes? <laughs> um, and they're like, I don't know. we got to come up with a name. <laughs> um, and so they struggled for a while, and they can't come up with anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're like, what the hell? Okay, so they're like trying to come up with a name for their cornflakes. Um, but they're serving the people, and people are like, oh, yeah, this is pretty good. It's it's it's." Kind of like it's kind of like the granola, but it's a little different. People mm-hmm. like it, and it gets really popular. It's one of those popular breakfasts at the sanitarium. So, I mean, you have like cornflakes, air, and water. That's like what you get to eat at they the had, sanitarium. They had porridge. Okay. They had porridge too. They also they had like, porridge. You could have warm cornflakes. <laughs> yes, porridge or cornflakes. Oh, I'll take the cornflakes. Um, so his brother Will is like, man, this is good. People like this. We got to start selling this stuff. And he's like, eh, I'm not that interested in, in selling it. Like, we're serving here. We're doing fine. It will spread on its own. People will get this. And so they're having all these people come through and try it. People love it. And one day, this traveler who is taking a break uh, from his, like, you know, very intensive job, Mr. Charles William Post, walks through the door. He sure fucking does. And Charles William Post comes in, and he tries these cornflakes, and he's like, oh, this is delicious. What do you call this? And they're like, we, we, he's like, what do you call these cornflakes? They're like, we haven't really thought of a name yet. And Charles William Post is like, you fucking idiots. So, so, <laughs> so you didn't trademark it, I'll tell you that. Yeah. So Charles William Post goes and he, and he secretly is like, I'm going to go fucking start a cereal company. Mm-hmm. And so, um, because he is a genius in naming things, Charles <laughs> William Post uh, leaves and without telling the Kellogg brothers, goes and starts the postum cereal company he sure does and he starts a postum cereal company and starts marketing a cereal called post toasties <laughs> and <laughs> post toasties look a lot like the cornflakes that he got at the sanitarium and also i just want to point out that kellogg set out to make a cereal that was bland that no one wanted and all of these people are like this is fucking delicious well i mean like he didn't want no one wanted it. he wanted people to like it ah. he he wanted he wanted it to squash their inner demons. Yes, squash their demons. I, a demon-killing cereal. Yeah, and frankly, if you're eating, like, biscuits fried in last night's brisket fat, <laughs> like, maybe that's good the first couple days, but after, like, a couple months of that, you might be like, do you have anything a little lighter, maybe? Yeah, like, feel nope. terrible. <laughs> we got lard-covered biscuits again, buddy. That's all you got. <laughs> um, but not anymore now. Mr. Post takes his Post Toasties with the Postum Cereal Company to mm-hmm. the masses. Also, uh, alongside his other uh, breakthrough hit, which he ripped off, uh, the Grape Nuts. And people... And fisticuffs. Here we go. Man, people just tear through these things. They right? Sure this do. is like breakfast innovation. So within like three years of launching this cereal company, he is making $3 million a year selling this cereal, uh, mm-hmm. which is just, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in today's money. There's two reactions of the Kellogg brothers. Um, John Kellogg, right, the doctor, is like, oh, interesting. Okay, this is popular. Maybe we could sell this. And his brother's like, you fucking idiot. Like, he came through. He (laughs) stole this out from under us. Like, this should be our money. Right. And his brother's like, no, it's like for the greater good and for the purpose he's not that interested. And his brother John is like, I, sorry, his brother Will is like, I'm going to get my revenge. I'm going to go out and like destroy this this guy. So brother Will is like, all right, all right, I'm going to start selling them. But- in his effort to co- try to go claim some of this like burgeoning cereal market, makes an 
unforgivable, commits an unforgivable sin in his brother's eyes. He adds sugar. He sure does. He frosts the fucking flakes. He does. And let me tell you, John goes ballistic. He's like, what? How could you are you are corrupting the youth of America? America? They're mm-hmm. going to sit down to the breakfast table and start masturbating immediately. Yeah. Like, yeah. how are you going to yeah. excite their passions? And his brother Will's like, you don't understand. The only other option is grape nuts. These people are <laughs> buying Frosted Flakes as <laughs> fast as they can. He's like, it is doing gangbusters. It was. It was just immediately selling incredibly fast. And Dr. John Kellogg is like, I will not have this. So he starts this competing cereal company, and they get in this decades-long feud that will last most of the rest of their lives. Eventually, culminating in this lawsuit, Will's Battle Creek Toasted Cornflake Company mm-hmm. loses the rights, uh, eventually gets subsumed, and John gets the rights to both the company and to the name, the Kellogg Company. And that right there is the three-minute version of the beginning of the food industry. Yes. This... And if you're... If folks are curious and they want to learn more, they can read Michael Moss's Fat Sugar Salt or Salt Sugar Fat, where there's like an entire chapter dedicated to this feud between the Kellogg's, the Post, eventually the Kellogg brothers. Mm-hmm. And it's similar to the Aldi Trader Joe's oh, brothers. Yeah. The right? Aldi story is crazy. Two, also, two brothers that like are yep. feuding as well. Anyway. Mm-hmm. And so, anyway, that is one of the earliest stories of this industrialized food product being sold to a mass market because of the additive of sugar. Yeah, what starts well-intentioned and with the desire to bring people closer to the Lord ends in mass production and consumption fueled by an insatiable appetite for processed sugar. Lucky for, luckily for us, though. Kind of feels like letting people masturbate would have been less dangerous yeah. to public health. Yeah, good point. Good point. So... I Masturbation mean, for breakfast. Uh, <laughs> it's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, look look at us now. Okay, look at us now. Yes, look that's at true. us now. Look what the food industry hath wrought. Mm-hmm. Well, with this drama in the background, yes, ongoing, it becomes clear that despite his best efforts, just replacing people's <laughs> lard biscuits with cornflakes will not prevent all the masturbation he wants to prevent. Or the sex. Or the sex. Uh, but mostly the masturbation. Because ah, let's man, be... that having a fixation on what on something like that to me, it just you're doing too much, man. Something's going on. Yeah. Uh, yes. I mean, clearly, there's deep seated issues because again, people were starting to study human sexual health, and there's like all in his book, he gives this list of like ailments that masturbation will cause, right? Which is like upset stomach, dyspepsia, heartburn, seizures. Diabetes, uh, blindness. One of the places where blindness, like it's cemented into the public, uh, you know, consciousness, is through his books. Uh, all of these things, it's absolute bullshit. Like, there's, he's saying this as a doctor, but people are studying things. Like, there's no medical basis for this, and he's just making shit up, right? So he's like very fixated for religious reasons, and then like again cloaks it in this religious belief that then tries to sell it to everybody else. I mean, I don't know the Bible that well, but it doesn't seem like that's a a big concern in the Bible. There's one Old Testament thing about spilling the seed. It's like. It, again, it's like many things in the Bible, right? If you start to like go and look for your verses, it's the same thing that will like get you stoned for eating shellfish or like wearing, you know, two different fabrics at the same time, right? Like, it, there's yeah. a lot of these Old Testament verses that uh, will 
not withstand scrutiny in today's modern world, but Got people it. will selectively pull out and say, like, this is critical. That's how it works. To serve their needs or their weird, twisted fixations. So this is to say the breakfast cereal syndicate was not preventing enough morning masturbation. So <laughs> oh my God. he he's looking for other ways and he writes about sleep and how you have to avoid sleeping too well so that you can avoid masturbation. Specifically, soft beds and pillows must be carefully avoided. Quote, the floor with a single folded blanket beneath the sleeper would be preferable. If you're in pain and sleepless, you don't have a lot of motivation to do much of anything except exactly. to maybe ride a mechanical horse and get slapped <laughs> by some machine. Slap your fluids loose. Yes, it could work. He also said that, quote, in perfectly natural sleep, there are no dreams. Consciousness is entirely suspended. For the record, is absolutely false medically. <laughs> and if you don't dream, you will actually get incredibly unhealthy. Even if you don't remember your dreams, you must dream in order to maintain your mental health. Uh, <laughs> Meanwhile, and was... Freud across the world is like, hey, have some cocaine. Tell me about your dreams. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Competing school of thought there. <laughs> Other end of the spectrum. <laughs> if somebody came to him and was like, I'm dreaming and I can't help it and it's making me masturbate, he would say... <laughs> He said to disregard any patient's claim that they cannot, well, I don't want to say they. He said, disregard any patient's claim that she cannot control her dreams. The truth is she chooses not to so as to maintain one cherished outlet for her lascivious desires. Just one. That's all we're asking for, my man. Just one. And he was saying, no, no, no. If you are having dreams, that is because you're trying to masturbate in your sleep and absolutely unallowed. So stop having dreams through force of will. Like, that's the thing you had to do. Sleep on the blanket if you need to. Other uh, things that he discouraged because they could only lead to uh, masturbation, reading in general. I really um, hope no one is playing a drinking game where every time you say masturbation, they take a shot because everyone's dead by now. If you aren't, it's like the start 75th now. Time. This, <laughs> Some people really dislike th that word, and this will not be an episode they'll make it through. Oh, we're buckle up. We're just getting started. So what? <laughs> we're like forty-five minutes into this. It's going to be fun. So reading can encourage <laughs> masturbation. He said storybooks, romances, love tales, and religious novels constitute the chief part of the reading matter, which American young ladies greedily devour. We have known Can't have those women reading. No, that's exactly his point. <laughs> women be reading. We have known young ladies still in their teens who have read whole libraries of the most exciting novels. The taste for novel reading is like that for liquor or opium. Meanwhile, these lascivious <laughs> novels are fucking Pride and Prejudice. Yes, yes. <laughs> and like Little Women. <laughs> like, no, no one is. No, no one's girding their loins. Uh, trying to get through sense and sensibility. I mean, I don't know if if you are sitting in Michigan in February in the 1800s, eating grape nuts and cornflakes for breakfast, fanning yourself over Mr. Darcy. That may be what you got going for you. <laughs> that and your dreams, and so who knows? He might. He's trying to rule everything out. Um, to his great dismay, after feeding these people, especially these young people, graham crackers and grape nuts and cornflakes and taking away their beds and making them stop dreaming and not allowing them to read, he was utterly dismayed to find some of them were still masturbating. I mean, I bet a bunch of them got pregnant while they were there. 
I mean, that's interesting. I hadn't it's looked like into that. Conversion therapy. What, sir? None of this works. Yeah. Well, he has the sanitarium going, but it's also now his through his books. He's reaching out to this broader audience, and he's really starting to hear back. And it seems to be that the people who come to visit his sanitarium, although mostly adults, are really having this problem with their kids and their teenagers. And so this is the part where he starts to focus his energy on. He thinks that adults have the self-control to like generally stop and receive his treatments, but the mm. parents are telling these stories about their kids who just won't stop masturbating, and they've tried all these other treatments. And so this is kind of where it takes a darker turn, because he gets really fixated on how to specifically stop child masturbation. For this section, I just wanted to call it, I don't usually call it sources, because there's a lot of great stuff. And we Do kind we need of, some content warning in this also? Yes. So I was going to say two things. Okay. One, I was going to... Th- give a shout out to the author of this great article that I read uh, from Jezebel, Teresa O'Neill, um, who compiled a lot of this stuff that I actually hadn't been able to find in any other sources. Mm. Great place to go look. Um, but yes, this is a warning um, that will have all kinds of sexual violence involved over the rest of this chapter of the podcast. Oh, no. If it's not the kind of thing you can deal with, feel free to check out. But not going to be too graphic. It gets rough. With Kellogg, he had this fixation. He was trying to do it, and he didn't really have any scientific leg to stand on. He didn't think he could be wrong. He didn't second-guess himself. He was just like, at all costs, he knew this was right because it was his faith that he held unshakably. And so he began, without any studies or anything else, doing experiments on the sexual drives of children. He had said before that he knew all of these symptoms that were caused by masturbation of ailments later in life. But for kids specifically, he said there, there were a specific set of symptoms that you could find in kids that were caused by masturbation. So his symptoms were bedwetting, changes in behavior, insomnia, trouble in school, lying, either too much bashfulness or too much boldness, fearfulness, Unusual vaginal discharge, stretch vaginal cavity, or seductive behavior in little girls. Um, no, that sounds like abuse. That sounds like the symptoms of children who are being sexually abused. Yes. In fact, if you go look at specific uh, lists, uh, there's one that's from the Delaware Department of Services for Children, Youth, and Families. Yeah. Um, but that is, they give a list um, that is almost word for word identical, mm-hmm. which is all of the warning signs that a child has been sexually abused. Yes. So what he was fixating on were this group of children that most likely had suffered traumatic sexual abuse. Oh, fuck. And his fixation was on, on assuming that they had to secretly be masturbating. And how do you stop that? Oh, my God. And his methods, as the graham crackers and the blanket silliness didn't work, they got inc- increasingly desperate and increasingly horrific. Oh, no. So if you were one of the people reading his book or coming to him for advice and you asked him what to do, the first thing he would say is you have to catch your child in the act. So he recommended that after kids have gone to bed, the parents throw off their blankets under some pretense and examine the child's genitals for sexually excited characteristics. Right. So for penises, that meant like look for erections. And for vaginas, that meant if you found, quote, the clitoris to be congested with the other genital organs, uh, which also might be moist from increased secretion. Basically, he was describing like do this invasive uh, sexual trauma on your children if you suspect them of masturbating. And he said, 
God. Hopefully, he said, catching and examining them once will stop it. If you can imagine, right, uh, as a parent, like, trying to, yeah, it's, it's horrific. But he says, if that doesn't, bandaging the parts has been practiced with success. So tying the hands is also successful in some cases. What the fuck? But this will not always succeed, for they will often contrive to continue the habit in other ways, as by working the limbs or lying upon the abdomen. Covering the organs with a cage has been practiced with entire success. So we have pictures that I think you'd share sometime this week of like what chastity belts for children would look like to cage uh, around their sex organs. Children, are you talking about like six year olds? Are you talking about like preteens, like teenagers? There's evidence that he's talking about kids all the way from teenagers all the way down to like six or eight. Oh my god! There was kind of a warning before, but this is like a for real warning. If the violent part is too much for you, just heads up. But if the cages didn't work, there was really only one option left. So for people with penises, he recommended sewing together the foreskin of a child. Oh, my God. Or circumcision. Oh, my God. And specifically, circumcision, right, was done for other religious reasons. Sure. In Judaism, for example. But he said, quote, the operation should be performed by a surgeon without administering an anesthetic. As the brief pain attending the operation will have a salutary effect upon the mind, especially if it's connected with the idea of punishment, as it may well be in some cases. The soreness, which continues for several weeks, interrupts the practice, and if it not been previously too firmly fixed, it may be forgotten forever and not resumed. Oh, my God. So basically saying, make sure the child suffers. So much trauma. And knows its punishment. Like, this is this is a kid or a teenager, right? Like, without anesthetic going under this procedure for no medical reason. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, the kids with vaginas did got off much, much worse. I don't want to hear it. Yeah. So he said, quote, uh, a desperate case. Uh, a little girl about 10 years of age was brought to us by her father, who came with his daughter, to have her broken of this vile habit of self-abuse. Having read an early copy of this work, the father had speedily detected the habit, again, ripping off covers, doing the examination, and had adopted every measure which he could devise to break his child of this destructive vice which she had acquired, but in vain. It finally became necessary to resort to a surgical operation, by which it, it was hoped that she was permanently cured, as we have heard nothing to the contrary since. So, to be clear, what he is saying is... They would do a clitorectomy or female genital mutilation. Which still on, happens. Which still happens other places in the world. Mm-hmm. But this is uh, in America, in Michigan, right, under official pretenses of the Seventh-day Adventist Church of their, like, health, you know, health resort uh, for the rich and famous, like with the cutting-edge medical science, uh, doing genital mutilation. In some cases... They didn't think that was enough. No, I, I, I can't take any more. So the, the final treatment that they had was the application of carbolic acid and other irritants nope. Nope. to the sexual organs, the removal of the clitoris and the labia minora um, to essentially scar and disfigure the entire region. Oh, my God. Again, oh, this was a doctor and surgeon graduated from NYU and perpetrated this violence on children because he felt justified by his faith, right? Like he had enough medical training to know what 
medical research looked like and what medical studies looked like, how you yeah. could establish evidence, how you could figure out if something was actually causing a symptom or whether it was unrelated. He did none of those things in this case and simply resorted to, you know, incredible sexual violence somehow focused specifically on the subpopulation of children that most likely had already undergone sexual, sexual violence. violence previously in their lives. Jesus Christ. And we're all just like, oh, cornflakes, ha ha ha. Not that it's a competition, but if you were wondering if this asshole could get any worse, he does. Oh, a competition with himself? Yeah. Just for, year over year? Yeah, right? Like, how low can you go? Um, I mean, I really feel like the last, I don't know, 10 minutes was some of the lowest that we've had in our 67 episodes sure, sure. of this podcast. And now you're telling me this one particular person is going lower? Well, I, I will just say this. To top it off, after, after pushing and committing essentially these atrocities, right, under the guise of medical practice. He spends the last 30 years of his career and his time at the sanitarium uh, focused on making sure he can institutionalize and perpetuate policies of eugenics what? in American life. What the fuck? So he co-founded the Race Betterment Foundation, no. which attempted to cre create a, quote, eugenics registry in the Just United States. saying it out loud. Yeah, yeah, just explicitly. Again, Henry Ford was a big fan of this as well, but he was uh, one of the strongest and loudest uh, medical voices that was a proponent. He discouraged racial mixing uh, and encouraged sterilizing, quote, mentally defective persons while he was on the Michigan Board of Health. So he not only had these ideas like Henry Ford, but he also was in positions of power due to his medical expertise and actually successfully enacted state laws to force sterilization on people with diminished mental capacities uh, while he was there. So he not only perpetrated the sexual violence against children, but he also uh, successfully guaranteed the forced sterilization of thousands of people in the United States against their will and uh, in the name of preserving a purer, whiter race uh, for the United States. He does this work up until he dies on December 14th, 1943, Wow, that is that feels so recent. Yes. All the way through the world wars and like he is actively pushing to not just not just make these medical cases but to like institutionalize and make them systemic, right? That's mm -hmm. we talk about like systemic racism, right? Like the fact that like this is he is a voice of power that is actually passing legislation this whole time takes it to a whole other level that many people don't get to. So uh, whether it is for the eugenics programs and the forced sterilization or the white supremacy or the sexual mutilation of children or just forcing fucking grape nuts upon the world. Okay. So I was up, I was with you up to grape nuts, grape nuts. As a child, that was my favorite cereal, but I'll forgive you because you know what? It is kind of an atrocity. <laughs> Not at the child mutilation level, but okay. Yeah, so for all these things, except for greatness, which I'll let slide, John Kellogg, not my hero. Not my hero either. I, I don't think there's any any 
redemption, nothing that could positively, like no contribution could be made positively in the world that would outweigh the amount of harm he caused, both to individuals and like collective policies. Yeah, I mean, it it is just mind boggling. The yeah, if you ignore all of the ways that it shaped the food industry for the mm-hmm. worse uh, over time, but I mean, sure, leaving that. Also, maybe a lesson I'm learning here is that even if you're a voracious reader, if you only go to school from ages 9 to 11, that becoming a doctor later in life might not actually hold the same sort of weight as if you go to school your whole childhood. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I would say like that childhood education is not the part that strikes me as the thing, although I feel like it's a contributing factor to the real root cause, which is that the root cause to me seems like he grew up surrounded by people who not just claim to like be correct about religion and mm-hmm. understand and speak like he he worked for a woman who claimed to speak directly to God 2000 times. Yeah. Right. In a way that like God told her what to tell everybody else. Mm-hmm. But not going to school a lot and just being surrounded by that, his his functional model of the world was one of utter certainty about what was right for everyone else. And so it didn't matter what technical knowledge he brought to the table. If at its core, he's like, I understand what is good for everyone else and I will accomplish it at all costs, then like there's no check. Like it doesn't matter what scientific, you know, rigor you're going to bring. He's, he's, he's going to selectively just like leave that at the door whenever it's convenient to like accomplish what he feels are pre-justified goals. Right. And so it's like the certainty at the expense of any kind of curiosity or exploration or like in- investigation like mm-hmm. that fundamental self-assuredness that I know what's right and everybody else is wrong, that is the thing that I think gets you to justify like atrocious violence to like the most vulnerable people just because you know you're you're in the right. I mean, I think 100%, 100%, also coupling that with the fact that he was not surrounded for formative years of his life with other children, other people who were like experiencing and experiencing the world at the same rate he was. Like maybe if he went to high school and I don't know, talked to other teenage boys, he'd be like, Yeah, masturbation is totally normal. Yeah, and yeah, like a knows. thing that everybody does versus this like isolation with this, you know, very specific religious indoctrination. I don't know. It seems like this is a both and scenario and uh, it is both terrible and sucks. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, it's true. And uh, I'm sorry that it had to drag your favorite childhood cereal into this. Uh, it's fine. I haven't, again, I haven't had it in over 20 years. Well, that's fair. Um, if the people would like us to continue ruining their most precious childhood memories week after week, mm-hmm. where can they find us? They can find us on social media at Your Heroes Pod or on our website at MeetYourHeroesPodcast.com. Yep. And please like, share, rate, review, spread the word, tell your friends. And until next week. Don't be a hero. Don't be a hero. Bye. Bye.